All right, hi everyone. I'm Nicole Peterson. I'd like to thank you all for joining us for our SMA Stratcom Academic Alliance panel discussion entitled Nord Stream 2, Implications and Outcomes for U.S.-German Relations and the NATO Alliance. I'd also like to briefly thank today's panelists, Dr. David Durando, Dr. Arnold Dupoy, Dr. Ian Iftimi, Dr. Daniel Nesbaum, and Mr. Paul Michael Whitby for taking the time to present in today's panel discussion. Um, so before we begin, I just have a few quick housekeeping items. So we'll be having a virtual Q&A session at the conclusion of the discussion. So throughout the panel or during the live Q event Q&A, uh, feel free to submit your questions through the live event Q&A chat. It's two overlapping speech bubbles and one is a question mark. Also be sure to type in your name and affiliation before you submit your questions. Or if you'd prefer for your name to not be recorded, go ahead and submit your question anonymously. You can also hit the like, like button on which questions you'd like to be addressed first. All right, so now I'm going to briefly introduce all of today's panelists before they begin their presentations. Dr. David Durando has served as a member of the Department of History of Western Carolina University since 1987, and he teaches both graduate and undergraduate courses in modern European military and political history and the history of international relations. He's also a member of U.S. Stratcom's Deterrence and Assurance Academic Alliance and serves as a subject matter expert for SMA. Uh, Dr. Ian Iftimi is a um, technologist in energy and environmental security. He's a lector at the NATO Defense College in Rome, Italy, where he also served until recently as an Eisenhower PhD fellow and a visiting scholar. He also has over one decade serving as a military officer for the DOD and U.S. intelligence community. Mr. Paul Michael Whitby is the Executive Director at the Institute on Geopolitics of Energy and Strategic Resources at the recently established Center for American Geopolitics. He's a visiting scholar at the Environmental and, and Energy Management issue, uh, Institute at the George Washington University as well. Mr. Whitby is also a internationally recognized authority on the geopolitics of energy and unconventional fuels, logic supply chains, and relevant geopolitical, regulatory, and market factors. Dr. Daniel Nesbaum is a faculty member in the Operations Research Department at the Engineering School and the Energy Academics Group. He teaches courses in cost estimating and analysis. He mentors students through their graduate coursework, supplies cost estimating and business case analyses for, the major, gov for major governmental organizations, and he provides leadership to the Energy Academic Group. And lastly, but certainly not least, we have Dr. Arnold Dupoy who is a SAIC employee working as an analyst at the U.S. Air Force Warfighter Integration Capability. In his capability at the Pentagon, he provides qualitative and quantitative analyses of our operational energy risks to the mission, mission assurance, and, also, and he also studies geopolit uh, geopolitical aspects of energy security within the Transatlantic Alliance, as well as the Indo-PACOM area of responsibility. Okay, um, so now I'm going to turn the floor over to Dr. David Durando for the first presentation today. Uh, so, David, over to you. Uh, Nicole, thank you very much indeed. Um, I'd like to, uh, on behalf of the panel, I'd like to express our appreciation uh, not only to uh, Strategic Command Academic Alliance, but also the SMA for hosting today's event. Um, I'd also like to thank in advance all of my fellow panelists, uh, and particularly um, the special study team's co-leads, uh, Dr. Arnold Dupuy and Dr. Dan Nussbaum. Uh, and then finally, on behalf of the panel, I'd like to say thank you to all of you who have dialed in today. Uh, we know full well how busy all of you are all the time, and so we very much appreciate your joining us today. 
The uh, Nord Stream 2 special study team uh, constitutes a working group within the larger NATO Energy Security Analysis Project, SAS-163, um, also known as NISA in our sort of shorthand in, within the group. Uh, SAS-163, in turn, derives from several years' worth of effort to date uh, on the part of Arnie Dupuy uh, to bring together a number of researchers in both academic and applied fields to examine the issue of energy security within the context of the NATO alliance in an era of hybrid warfare. SAS-163 received its formal NATO approval in the second half of 2020 and is now operating under the aegis of the Science and Technology Organization um, while maintaining uh, collaborative relationships with various centers of excellence uh, such as the NSEC COE in Vilnius, uh, Lithuania, to name but one example. Uh, to the degree that energy security within the alliance uh, lies within the framework of guidance provided by documents such as the Joint uh, Doctrine Note 1-18 of April 2018 uh, and the Commander's Vision and Intent Statement, U.S. Strategic Command, May 2020, we on the panel would assert that the subject of today's presentation falls well within the remit of both Strategic Command's Academic Alliance and the Strategic Multilayer Assessment Program. For Nord Stream 2 carries with it not only significant economic impacts for Russia and for Germany, but also the potential for very real geostrategic consequences, first and foremost on NATO's eastern flank, but of course elsewhere within NATO and the European Union as well. If you'll look briefly at the PRECI, uh, uh, next slide please. Uh, Nicole, can you advance to slide? Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, uh, back up one slide, if you would, please. Uh, if you look briefly at the Precy, you'll see what our schedule of um, uh, movement is here today. I'll set the German political context, uh, and then we hope to hear observations on deterrence implications in Ukraine, the market sector analysis and German-Russian relations, great power competition, and then finally, uh, the impact on NATO. Thank you. Next slide, please. Uh, by way of setting the stage for today's discussion, uh, the map that you see illustrates the geopolitical uh, complexity of the environment within which Nord Stream 2 and incidentally Nord Stream 1 lie as they run from the Gulf of Finland to the Baltic sea coast of Germany. As you can clearly see, the pipelines remain in immediate proximity to six member states of NATO, all of which are also members of the European Union, as well as two EU member states which are not members of NATO. Uh, and, of course, you can also see uh, the Kaliningrad Oblast of Russia. Needless to say, as the map indicates, there are many moving parts in this matter, including a critical element which does not show up on this map, namely Ukraine, uh, of which you'll hear more in due course. Next slide, please. Uh, Germans refer to this year, 2021, as a Zuprovaljahr, uh, given the fact that there are a, a raft of elections at the municipal, state, and federal level beginning this month. As in the United States, uh, state elections in Germany uh, often serve as bellwethers for national political trends and the fortunes of various political parties. And sometimes they assume a greater uh, prominence in Germany than they do in the United States, 
precisely because there are only 16 states in Germany. While the calendar of party conventions uh, was disrupted by pandemic-related restrictions, the elections which were previously scheduled for the southwestern German state of Baden-Württemberg and the west-central German state of the Rhineland-Palatinate are going ahead this month as scheduled, as will the election in the east-central German state of Sachsen-Anhalt uh, in June. The state elections in the state of Thuringia in the east of Germany and in the city-state of Berlin will be held in conjunction with the national election on the 26th of September. Uh, interestingly enough, for the purpose of our group here today, uh, there will also be uh, a state election in the North German state of Mecklenburg-Vorpommern on the Baltic Sea coast on the 26th of September. Uh, that happens to be the state where Nord Stream 2 makes its landfall on the coast near the city of Greifswald. Uh, next slide, please. The question that looms large, of course, is how German voters will react uh, in the wake of a year's worth of pandemic restrictions, economic disruption, and an unprecedented degree of conspiracy mongering, all of which are fostered, of course, and made worse by Russian disinformation. Also uncertain is the ultimate impact of Chancellor Angela Merkel's decision not to seek re-election in September. The likeliest winners according to the most recent data that I have seen, and as you see it here on slide five, could well be the center-right party of the Christian Democratic Union and the CDU's sister party in Bavaria, the Christian Social Union, along with, interestingly enough, the Greens. Such an outcome would create the possibility of a so-called black-green coalition, which would be a first at the national level in Germany, though there has been some state-level cooperation. The left wing, and more particularly the quasi-fascist right wing protest parties, are currently down but not out, as I heard it rather neatly put on Monday in a webinar. These two groups are the left party and the alternative for Germany, the AFD, respectively. Germany's oldest political party, the Social Democrats, the SPD, are essentially ineffectual at this particular moment in time, and the very small free market, free democratic party is too small numerically to be, a, to be critical, except as the proverbial sort of thumb on the scale in the event that there is a multi-party set of negotiations. As regards Nord Stream 2 specifically, only the Greens and the left party oppose the pipeline's completion as a matter of environmental principle. I would suggest, however, that the Greens might buckle on the issue in the face of the party's leadership's desire to enter national governance even though the base remains staunchly opposed to the pipeline's completion. We and they, however, will have to await the political eternity of seven months worth of elections, which begin 11 days from today. Uh, I'll turn the mic over to the next panelist and I'll be happy to take questions in the Q&A. Thank you. All right, thank you, David. Ion, um, are you on? Yes, I, I am on, and uh, I, I can watch you. I'm on the phone now. Um, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Uh, so go ahead and, and begin when you're ready. Great, great. Thank you. Thank you again. Um, right, so um, what I'm going to, uh, if you can go to the next slide. Um, uh, OK. 
Okay. So there's going to be a Fair delay light. on your end. Um, so just uh, okay. um, be confident that I'm uh, going along with, with you when you uh, ask to advance to the next slide. Great. So what I'm going to talk about, uh, as you see here, is the pipeline politics in uh, Central and Eastern Europe and its impact on the NATO alliance. Uh, more specifically um, about, uh, about the situation um, in, uh, in Ukraine. Um, so I'm, I'm a lecturer at the NATO Defense College, and I'm also collaborating uh, with, uh, with the Black Sea Area uh, Studies Program uh, at the University of Bucharest, and I've had a lot of uh, interest in, at the Black Sea, and particularly the situation in, uh, in Ukraine. So if you go to, um, to, to the second slide, um, so the question that I'm trying to cover here is, is will the, the Nord Stream 2 completion um, affect the, the deterrence posture uh, with regards to uh, Russia-Ukraine um, conflict? Um, and if, if, you, if you see here um, on, the, on the slide, uh, refer referencing uh, the Harmo uh, report from, from 1967, the NATO is, is very uh, interested in uh, deterring the aggression uh, and, and other forms of, of pressure, particularly with regards to the east-west uh, confrontation. And Ukraine is uh, perceived, uh, particularly uh, on, the, on the eastern front of the alliance, as an exposed uh, area on the, on the east uh, flank. And if you look at the 2009 uh, Russia-Ukraine uh, gas disputes, which basically uh, cut off the, the transport of, of natural gas from Russia to Europe for about 13 days, and it, ca it caused a, a, lot of, a lot of issues, uh, not just uh, for, for Europe, but also for, uh, for Russia, because uh, Russia all of a sudden was, was seen as an unreliable partner because it couldn't uh, deliver uh, natural gas uh, to, um, to Europe and particularly to, to NATO um, allies uh, in, uh, in Europe. So from, from that perspective, um, there's uh, at least a perception um, that peace in Ukraine is dependent on, on this current uh, Russian uh, dependence. Um, on, on Ukrainian uh, pipelines. Uh, in other words, um, the fear is, is that once uh, Russia no longer has to transport natural gas through Ukraine, uh, the conflict uh, in Ukraine, uh, the, the Ukraine-Russia conflict will resume uh, all the way um, to the Tiraspol uh, border, basically where Moldova is, so covering the southern uh, part of, um, of Ukraine. So if you go to the next slide, and this is the map, the slide with the map uh, with the pipelines uh, that go from, uh, from Russia to, um, to the European Union. Um, so the current situation um, shows that Russia is delivering uh, natural gas through Nord Stream 1, uh, primarily uh, Yamal and, and Ukraine, primarily Ukraine. Uh, but you also have some, uh, uh, some proposed pipelines, such as uh, Nord Stream 2, which, which is nearing uh, completion, what, the, what, what Gazprom is hoping by, by the end of, uh, of this year. But there's other pipelines, um, such as uh, Vilnius and, and, uh, and Warsaw, 
uh, in the works and, uh, and even uh, one that goes through Belarus uh, and eventually um, through, um, through Austria. Um, so uh, if you go to the next slide, uh, and this is the slide that uh, talks about uh, Russian gas exports to Europe uh, and Turkey by route uh, percentage, um, you will notice here that since the Nord Stream 1 inauguration, so Nord Stream 1 was inaugurated uh, back in uh, 2011, um, you see a shift not from any of other pipelines to Nord Stream uh, 1. Uh, you see that the shift happened from Ukraine. Uh, so it started in 2012, 2013, and 2015. And, and the only pipeline that started decreasing with, with, uh, tra for transit was the pipeline in, uh, in Ukraine. Um, and, and the next slide. Um, covers um, the, what happens basically from 2015 to 2017, uh, where you see that in Ukraine, uh, out of the, where the transport fell down to 93.4 uh, BCM, but the capacity for the pipeline is 165. So basically, um, what you have now, all of the sudden. Um, a big portion of, of the Ukrainian pipeline is, is not being used because it was transferred to Nord Stream 1. So you see that, that 51 BCM um, that was transferred um, through, um, through Nord Stream, uh, to Nord Stream 1 from the Ukrainian uh, pipelines. Um, and if uh, the next slide um, covers the, the Russian uh, pipeline exports um, to Europe by, by delivery route. Um, so, and, and this, this data is right 2017, 2018, 2019, it, it stayed a bit pretty, pretty constant. So now we're looking at um, 81, 84 um, BCM um, going through the Ukrainian uh, pipeline. I, I just want to do a comp check again that everybody can hear me um, just to Hello. Correct. We can hear you. I hear you. Okay. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and so, and that's that's pretty much what what uh, what uh, uh, exports uh, through Ukraine are looking at, even at, at this level um, as as of 2020. Um, so, what we're expecting now, uh, if you go to the the next slide, um, is that. Uh, with the completion of, of Nord Stream uh, 2, and this was even made public by, by, by Gazprom, so this is not a secret, um, that the vast majority of, of the gas that will be transfor transported through Nord Stream 2 will be uh, transitioned again from, from Ukraine. And with the current negotiations um, where Russia has doesn't want to agree for a 20-year contract with Ukraine, um, they, uh, they've agreed that only 40 BCM will be transported through Ukraine over the near term and may even go lower um, than that as, as other pipelines may end up um, being uh, constructed 
by by Russia to to transport uh, natural gas to uh, to Europe. At the same time, that doesn't mean that that the 40 BCM that is left to Ukraine, okay, well there's at least 40 BCM that's being transported. That's not really accurate because what we do have for the projections through um, going to Europe is that Europe will be consuming less natural gas from from Russia. So eventually that 40, um, eventually um, that 40 BCM uh, will uh, will go uh, will go down. Um, and I'm doing one more um, com check uh, on this end. Yes, yes, we can hear you. Loud and clear. Okay. Um, so with that uh, with that uh, in mind, um, is that uh, the Nord Stream two um, issue is is very important with regards to uh, to peace on the on the Eastern Front um, because once um, uh, once that natural gas uh, is is being transferred uh, from from going through Ukraine to going to Europe through other pipelines, um, there is no uh, deterrence really for other than uh, maybe some of the diplomatic ones, but at least with regards to the economic uh, ones um, that are of, of, of grave concern for, for European partners, um, there's no deterrent, there's nothing deterring um, Russia really for taking a more aggressive stance um, on, uh, on Ukraine uh, with basically um, supporting the local groups. I'm not talking here about an invasion or, or anything like that. Um, but but the stance will become much more aggressive, particularly in the southern uh, Ukraine, where we have um, uh, a big uh, Russian uh, population. And I think everybody was expecting that the issue would be discussed at uh, the 2021 Munich Security Conference, uh, but it wasn't addressed uh, for, for this very reason that uh, um, there is a lack of agreement between the allies of whether the, the pipeline should be allowed to be to be constructed, uh, of course um, you have um, uh, France, Germany, um, and uh, and Austria arguing that this is this is just uh, an economic uh, uh, issue, uh, and it shouldn't it shouldn't uh, you know other considerations should not be discussed with regards to the completion of the pipeline. But of course, the, the Eastern partners see it very differently. So if you look at the discourses in Poland, you look at the discourses in Romania, um, you look, of course, at the discourses in Ukraine, is that uh, that this should be looked at much more than just an economic uh, project. Um, at the same time, I, I think it, it would be worth um, uh, acknowledging the, the Gazprom uh, concern um, that the Ukrainian Ukrainian infrastructure is is aging, uh, and 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 they're using this as the reason why they're trans um, why they have the transfer of of this transportation of natural gas through Ukraine to um, Nord Stream two, but really that's that's I mean then why wouldn't they transfer that from the the natural gas that is going through Belarus right because their uh, their infrastructure is probably uh, it's it, it even even uh, they have much more uh, it's even more aged than the, the Ukrainian one, so that's really not a good um, argument um, to use. So uh, the issue here, I think, is um, 
is that there is much more to this project than just a very economic one. And, and some things to consider is what tools and, and what instruments do we have in place for deterrence uh, for for Russia uh, Ukraine conflict, uh, if if the this transportation of natural gas through Ukraine uh, goes away, and uh, at least the perception uh, on the Eastern Front is 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 that there's really not a lot of uh, of instruments currently put in uh, in place. And I apologize for not being on video uh, again, and I went a little bit fast probably through this because I didn't want to, uh, to, lose, um, to lose you. Uh, I'm, I'm calling from, from Abu Dhabi, and I had to go through a VPN, and, and it, it's, been, it's been incredibly difficult to, uh, to connect uh, safely um, to the conference. So thank you for your understanding uh, uh, with this, and I look forward to, um, to your questions. Thank you. No worries. Thank you so much, Jan. Um, Paul Michael, I, I believe you're next. Um, I think you're still on mute. Okay, here we go. There you go. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Nicole, and thank you, Mariah, for setting us up. And um, I have a very uh, uh, nice uh, handoff from Ian as he talked about the commercial and economic and geostrategic issues pertaining to Nord Stream 2. Now, my presentation will deal uh, with market and commercial trends current and projected as it relates to <clears throat> the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Um, and really what I would like to do is come to the conclusion first and reverse engineer the logic that led me to that conclusion. And the conclusion is basically this as a consequence of fairly recent uh, developments in the energy market and political developments in the United States and Germany, uh, Nord Stream 2 has emerged as a strategic imperative for Germany. And as such, in my opinion, the pipeline will be completed uh, according to the schedule put forward by its uh, builders. And the NATO alliance will have to uh, recognize and accommodate itself to that reality. Uh, this uh, mindset was recently affirmed by statements from Chancellor Merkel and interestingly enough from President Macron uh, based on their recent uh, bilateral discussions. And Macron uh, commenting uh, on uh, the need for NATO to reevaluate itself, revitalize itself, uh, redefine uh, who is an enemy and uh, who is an adversary and so on. So I think the completion of that pipeline, driven as it is by market realities and political realities, as David outlined in the beginning of our discussion, dictates uh, large volumes of uh, natural gas to be transported to Germany from Russia. Beyond that, Germany as a sovereign state has an obligation to its citizens to maintain 
the economic viability of the country by ensuring uh, the country has sufficient supplies of hydrocarbon fuels, including natural gas, to sustain demand at the industrial, residential, and commercial levels. Now, that issue has been put into clear focus by the events of the past few weeks in a very severe winter that impacted much of Europe, Germany certainly, it's 30,000 or so windmills. Uh, the whole uh, operating premise behind Germany's energy transition, energy win. If you take that experience along with the experience that recently took place almost at the same time, simultaneously in Texas. And Nicole, can we go to the next slide? Uh, we see that the issue of renewable energy, particularly renewable uh, power generation from solar and wind, now needs to be totally re-examined as a consequence of solar panels being snowed over, as a consequence of windmills not being able to turn, as a consequence of blackouts, and the impact, the social and economic impact on the citizens of those two jurisdictions, Germany and Texas. In other words, uh, what we have in both cases, which need to be studied thoroughly in a top-down review to understand the viability of wind and solar within this context. The outcome of, of that review uh, will simply un, uh, undermine uh, the role of these renewable resources and will emphasize the role of hydrocarbon fuels like natural gas, particularly in the case of Germany. What we have within that review that will be conducted thoroughly by these jurisdictions, we either have at best an aberration in power supply, a one-time disaster that will not be repeated, or we have mission critical failure within the entire framework of power generation in both jurisdictions. In the case of Germany, the end result will be, in my opinion, greater dependency on fossil fuels, hydrocarbons, meaning natural gas, coal, and possibly the return of nuclear power generation to the country. This speaks again to the need to import significant volumes of hydrocarbon fuels, particularly natural gas. And if one begins to talk about the sources of natural gas, one talks about obviously Nord Stream 2 and Russian gas coming in. And the question there is, is there an alternative to Russian natural gas and Nord Stream 2. Next slide, please. 
And the fact of the matter is, no, there is no alternative currently or projected to Russian natural gas being piped in via Nord Stream 2. U.S. LNG has been uh, shipped in, uh, to the premier Asian markets, South Korea, China, Japan. And you see the graph here from November of 2020. And that has continued into January. The top importer of U.S. LNG has been China and Japan. Uh, you simply uh, don't see the European consumers, apart from Turkey, on that list. Similarly, the other major exporter of LNG that could supply an alternative to Russian natural gas via Nord Stream 2 is Qatar. But if you take a look at this very recent uh, chart, Qatari volumes of LNG are being shipped uh, to the uh, Eastern Asian markets as well. Uh, because the profits are greater on the return from Asia than they are on the return from Europe. Next slide, please. Apart from that, domestic German production of natural gas has decreased significantly. Plus, uh, Dutch natural gas is, is being uh, eliminated and it will cease production uh, within a few years. So European mainland supplies of natural gas are simply not available. And if you look at that chart, these two uh, comparative charts, you see that Russian natural gas uh, piped into Germany right now, uh, either by Nord Stream or through Poland, is over 50% of the supply of pipe gas into Germany. So there's a heavy reliance on Russian natural gas. Uh, and one, one, one of the reasons for that, of course, is that it is reliable, it comes in large volumes, and is cost effective. On that last graph that you see, the uh, cost to the German uh, industrial sector and the German residential sector from 2008 to 2019 has decreased by 40%. That's a valuable savings, very high and very valuable savings to the German economy, residential and industrial. And that correlates with the first Nord Stream pipeline, which was completed in 2011. So we go to the last part, to the last chart. Very quickly, my time is up. U.S. LNG exports uh, as the uh, the white knight alternative to Russian natural gas is highly problematic at this stage. It's highly volatile for a number of reasons, not the least if I may add, are the uh, new uh, regulatory policies being introduced by the Biden administration, uh, which places into question the amount of natural gas volume that could be shipped out for export to consumers in Europe, uh, consumers such as Germany. So this situation wherein there's been a lot of talk that the United States could very well replace significant the offsets significant volumes from Russia has now been cast into doubt because of new policies and new regulatory uh, structures that the Biden administration uh, intends to place uh, into the oil and gas sector here in the United States, which basically will downscale the level of production and the level of exports of both crude and natural gas. And I'll end it there. Thank you. All right. 
Okay, right. can, you, can you hear me? Yes. So give me my first slide, please, and thank you very much. Thank you to uh, Nicole for all the help, David for setting this up, Arnie for being my partner in crime on this thing, and for everybody listening. So um, great power competition is what I want to talk about, but it's also what everybody's been talking about. It's not clear how I can add to this. I mean, we're talking about uh, pipelines. We're talking about energy, the pressure that one country can put on another, Russia on Ukraine, Russia on Germany. We're talking about other people are watching. You know, everything that happens in international politics, everybody's watching to, to learn lessons. So great power, great power competition has been the constant refrain in what you've heard so far. Um, the graphs and the maps that have happened so far are the essence of uh, the visualization of what's going on out there in great power competition. So I'm going to talk about uh, great power competition, but I'm also going to take an opportunity to talk uh, for two and a half to three minutes about the organization I come from. Uh, if you don't want to hear about it, this is the time to get coffee. If you do, this is really a strange organization I belong to, the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. Next slide, please. That uh, it's gorgeous weather. That seems to be what it uh, shows there, and it's quite true. It's uh, Northern California. We've been around for about 100 years. We are, in fact, the graduate research university of the Department of Defense. Uh, we do M uh, masters and PhDs only. It is one of those jewels in the DOD crown that nobody knows about, strangely. And I've been here, here for about 15 years. So you can see that uh, we have students who come in with uh, fresh operational experience. They've been out in the theater and in the field. They know what's needed. And we're the theoreticians, and it's a great blend between them and us. We have about uh, 1,500 students, about the same number in distributed learning, although COVID, of course, has changed all those, <laughs> all those numbers. Um, we're open. We have classes, but they're all by Zoom. Next slide, please. That's the larger picture of the Naval Postgraduate School. Uh, in particular, the Energy Academic Group established uh, nine years ago to bring together in, an interdisciplinary group of people to work on uh, what I call the three pillars. And you can see them there, curricula or education, research, and we do theses. Every student needs to do a master's thesis. And outreach, that is, um, smart as we all are, we know we don't know everything and therefore we reach out to other people. So this is an interdisciplinary integrative group, the Energy Academic Group, and it's not so hard to find on the web under nps.edu, navalpostgraduateschool.edu. Um, so next slide, please. Just a little bit about our research. Um, they fall into four categories that you see there, optimization and efficiency. I belong to the OR group, the Operations Research Department. They're the folks who do network optimization and all sorts of other optimizations. Um, critical energy infrastructure protection and resilience. That's a big deal. Ask any Ukrainian about uh, who's fooling around with their networks, their critical energy infrastructure networks, and you worry about how can you make these infrastructures, how can you protect them so they don't have to take a punch but more importantly, since they are going to take a punch, how do they bounce back? That's the resilience question, and that's actually a very real academic and real-world question. So we've done a bunch of tabletop exercises there. We're interested in renewables and the emerging technologies, 
And we're also interested in behavior change. I'll give you a short example. Um, when you look at marine units on, um, uh, in exercises, most of the fuel they use for their vehicles was spent in idle mode. They'd all learned that when the commanding officer says move out, they don't want to say, wait a moment while I start my vehicle. They want it going. So a great deal of fuel was spent on, um, uh, in, in idling mode. Can you change that behavior? More importantly, why would you want to change that behavior? Well, it's not to save money. I don't care about saving money. I care about winning wars. I want to have more fuel in my tank for the fight. I don't want to have to break off and say, sorry, I have to go refuel. I'm saving fuel because I want to have fuel in my tank for a fight, whether it's vehicles, aircraft, or ships. So those are the kinds of research we do. Um, next slide, please. And finally, I want to talk a little bit about uh, some short courses that we, put, we have. Uh, there's a whole alphabet soup there. You can ignore it. But we do professional development both inside the U.S. and outside the U.S. And you can see some of the course topics that, uh, that are there. Uh, these slides, uh, Nicole, will be available to people. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Great. Okay. So uh, anything that uh, catches your attention, you can look up later and you can always reach me. My email is on the first slide. So let me go to this, the next slide um, and repeat some of the things that you've heard, which is the world has changed. Yes, of course the world has changed. In the upper left, the U.S. was the big demander of energy back in the year 2000. In the lower right, China is the big demander of energy in 2040 or will be. You can see that the ordering in the queue of who's using energy has changed. So that's the demand side. Of course, the supply side you've also heard a bit about. But you can see the real changes that are going on. And so the U.S. was first and now it's second and China was third and now it's first, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Other things people focus on are the growth rate, not just the absolute value, but who's growing faster. You know, when you go from one to two, that's a 100% increase, but nobody cares about one to two. You care about the bigger numbers like, uh, like Africa, India, Southeast Asia. Those are, they start as fairly big numbers and the growth rates are big. So those are the big growth areas for demand. So one of the big things in the geopolitical arena is, well, where are the markets? And this slide uh, gives you an inkling of where the markets are. Can I have the next slide, please? I have two slides on, um, on maps. You've seen enough maps already. Um, this, of course, underlies the fact that it's all geopolitical. And by geopolitical, I mean both geography, which you don't quite see here. You know, you don't see the rivers and mountains which either aid or inhibit the flows of energy, but those are quite important. Um, so f where are the, uh, the pipelines into Switzerland? Well, you know, so you have to look at, um, uh, at geography and you have to look at politics. Um, my three, uh, my views of Russia's three imperatives forever and ever going back and going forward are number one, we want uh, strategic depth. That is, we want to be able to absorb a hit. They know how to spell Napoleon and they know how to spell Hitler. They want strategic depth. They always did. They always will. How much is enough? Oh, that's easy to answer. Nothing is enough for them. So they always want more and more strategic depth. Hence uh, Ukraine, hence etc. Uh, the second thing they want is respect or to say it differently, they want a place at the table. 
preferably at the head of the table with the gavel. Uh, they've always suffered from this inferiority complex, and they've always wanted respect. And so they push for that. And they always want a warm water port. And Syria and Latakia and other things of that sort uh, uh, highlight that issue. So they want strategic depth, respect, and uh, a warm water port. Uh, that's a good summary, in my mind, of Russia. It covers about 60% of what you need to know about Russia. There you have the, the pipelines. Uh, you can figure out where the vulnerabilities are if you know how to do network optimization. That's the story about network um, resilience. Where would, where would you as an adversary cut a pipeline to make maximal impact on somebody? And where would you as the operator of these pipelines shore up the resilience in order to minimize the maximum harm that a determined and intelligent adversary could do. These are nested optimization problems. It's exactly the stuff that the operations research and mathematical folks work on, and they generate interesting results. Um, I don't know that that's been done yet for Nord Stream 2. Um, next slide, please. Second slide about geopolitics of it all. You've sort of seen this also. Darker colors mean they depend more on Russian gas. Lighter colors, they rely less on Russian gas, but less means 20 to 49%. So you can see the pipelines overlaid with the percentages and, and all that. Um, as you, if you as a, um, a supplier of natural gas start thinking about what should I invest in, you have to worry about stranded assets. It's very difficult to build a coal plant in the US, not because we don't know how, and not because we don't have needs, but because nobody really wants to lend the money. There's a reasonable chance that it'll be banned at some point and then you have a stranded asset. So there's a whole reluctance in the hydrocarbon business. Uh, and so there's that issue. Um, what else do I wanna say about this? I think I have one more minute. Uh, so go to the next slide, please. Is that a fair time check? One more minute. So I have two books that you ought to read by Daniel Yergin, who of course is terrific, right? Uh, these two books are wonderful. Next slide, please. Last two books that I would uh, recommend that you read are by Peter, it looks like Zihan, but it's, it's Zion. And I'm gonna tell you quickly what his premise is. He says, post-World War II, Bretton Woods, the US said to everybody, you know what? We'll provi provide you freedom of navigation. You don't have to build a Navy. We'll protect everybody's trade. Have a nice day, do international trade, and they did. And the international trade business built up and people got rich on it. And we protected everybody by freedom of navigation on the high seas. Over the last couple of administrations, the US has backed away from a full-throated internationalism, much more in the Trump, but a little bit in Obama leading from behind. And so, the, because it's in response to the population saying, why do we spend all that money to protect the high seas? What's that doing for America? And the answer used to be oil, but fracking says, what? We don't really have to protect the sea lanes out of the Straits of Hormuz. And so there's this push to have the US back away somewhat. And that's what Peter writes about. And he writes about the winners and losers in that. And I find him uh, compelling, uh, snarky and, uh, and clear-sighted. Um, I hope that was helpful. Over to you. All right. Thank you, Dan. Uh, and Arnie, you're next. 
Thanks, Nicole. Again, thanks to uh, to uh, Dr. Rondo for uh, making this happen, and also the support from Nicole and uh, Mariah, and and also the organizers for this. So, what I want to do is uh, next slide. Next slide, please, Nicole. What I want to do is is take these these great presentations we've had up to now and build on them and, and try to conclude this this panel in, in in a focus on the alliance particularly uh, regarding uh, the Nord Stream 2. So uh, next slide please. So we've seen graphs I don't want to belabor these too much but clearly we see the uh, the demand side on the left uh, demand is going for natural gas is going to increase probably at a, a low rate uh, but still there will be an increase and if you look at the right side uh, we're seeing a shift in suppliers uh, as uh, uh, certainly as uh, Professor Wiebe mentioned uh, the, the domestic uh, production is going to drop or has dropped significantly and that will be made up uh, from other sources primarily from from Russia uh, next slide please and another quick just quickly go over this uh, this is a bit old, but I still like it. You see the darker colors uh, indicate a, the dependence on Russian gas. Uh, the, the big exception, if you look at Lithuania, I think Lithuania in this case is probably a white because they've, they've taken extreme measures to uh, disassociate themselves from the, or to alleviate the dependence on Russian, uh, Russian gas. So we see, again, very strong dark colors to the east. Uh, of course, Finland is almost completely red, as I'm, as, as I understand, and also the the Balkan states are very, very red. So we see a, a very much a um, dependence throughout the alliance, uh, eastern, eastern and western Europe, on uh, on Russian uh, natural gas. Uh, next slide, please. So, some years ago, I, I heard someone mention that uh, talking about this this newfound interest of NATO in energy, and I, I had to chuckle to myself, saying, "Well, that's um, NATO has been interested in energy uh, in some form, whether operational or, or economic or, or political, going back uh, almost to the beginning." And uh, Dr. Timmy mentioned uh, the the Harmel report, but I say even before that, uh, going back to the 50s under the uh, the 1956 uh, Wiseman report. Uh, where NATO began to be forced to look at outside issues, primarily, uh, if you notice, in 1956 there was there, there were, the main event was Suez crisis, uh, but also the Hungarian uprising. So NATO was was forced to look at out of area issues, primarily in um, very very seriously looking at the Middle East, which, which was its its primary source of of, uh, of fuels. Uh, so we're looking at uh, again the idea of looking at uh, political economic issues. Uh, exposed areas and also the the southeastern flank were becoming very important to the alliance even back uh, in the in the early days. So NATO again, NATO has had a very strong interest in in energy um, going back to the beginning, both uh, politically, economically, and and operationally. So next slide, please. Again, from the operational standpoint, uh, NATO has developed a over the years uh, developed a very uh, very elaborate, uh, redundant, very very well redundant uh, network system, the NATO pipeline system. It's a bit old in some areas, uh, most areas I should say, but it is still functional. And the most important part of this, arguably, is the, the Central European pipeline system, uh, which is the largest and the most uh, significant as, as far as as far as uh, operational plans are concerned. However, again, 
the main point I, I, that we need to to keep in mind is NPS is has and always will be at this point anyways dedicated to liquid fuels, not natural gas. Uh, so we see uh, natural gas rising in the last few decades as a as a significant uh, economic and political force. Uh, the, the, the NATO pipeline system has has not really kept up in that capacity. So next slide, please. So again, uh, talking about uh, and I think Dr. Ifkimi mentioned this in passing earlier, but talking about uh, NATO efforts to to support energy security. Uh, within the, within the member states, uh, the first real emphasis that we saw goes back to right after the Cold War, right at the end of the Cold War, the, the 1991 strategic uh, concept, where they talked about disruption of the flow of vital resources. So that was really the, the first time we've seen it uh, mentioned as uh, more or less from a, a higher level geopolitical standpoint. Of course, previous um, uh, concepts talked about logistics, talked about fuels. But not in this such a, a high level uh, geopolitical or economic uh, perspective. And this has continued since 1991. We've, we've seen the pendulum shift dramatically. Whereas if you now you see the, the most recent uh, strategic concept and some of the communiques coming out of summits, there's a tremendous emphasis on energy security, operational energy. Uh, so that so NATO is taking this very seriously. But then again, if you, you go back to the uh, the, the recent uh, recent uh, summits, the, the communiques, the language, the, the Nord Stream 2 is very much absent. And I mean, we, we clearly understand that that this is uh, deliberately a, a German effort to to uh, keep this uh, under wraps. But again, so some of the, the clearly uh, identifiable topics that are that are important to the alliance are, are not really being discussed at uh, certainly in in, uh, in public forum. Uh, so next slide, please. Again, just another another idea or another example of NATO energy security. Uh, there, there are two primary organizations within the alliance, one in Brussels, uh, the hybrid threats and energy security section, and the other one is the Energy S uh, Security Center of Excellence in, uh, in Lithuania. Uh, again, this, so they address energy security from a variety of standpoints, political, but also operational. And they're, they're run by uh, Michael Rula is in Brussels and Colonel Romas Petkovicius is in uh, Vilnius and two very experienced uh, professionals uh, running these these organizations. So again, an example of NATO being very much uh, adept, very much interested in, in energy security. Uh, and and they've, they've actually developed a, a, a structure around this to try and address these issues. Next slide, please. So if we, we take this from a U.S. perspective, again, the U.S. being the really the, the primary guarantor of European security over the last uh, uh, you know many many decades, we're seeing a, again we're seeing a bit of a, a disconnect between the, the Congress and the executive branch. So, for instance, uh, Congress, uh, the Senate in particular, has been very strong uh, against Nord Stream Two, and certainly uh, Senator Cruz. And we see uh, Senators uh, Shaheen and, and Rish uh, make, making just in the last few weeks, making very strong statements against Nord Stream 2. So uh, we're seeing a, a, a again, a, a, a very profound uh, concern with the within the uh, alliance and also within the member states on the, the, uh, the pipeline. Uh, next slide, please. 
We're seeing a slight difference in the administration, although the Biden administration has clearly come out against Nord Stream 2, saying it was it was a bad, uh, bad decision. Uh, Secretary of Defense Austin uh, has attempted to calm members' nerves through various uh, means, through an op-ed article he wrote a few weeks ago and also the summit that, uh, recently. But again, there's no mention of Nord Stream 2 in particular and, and no addressing the, the really the fundamental problems that, that we need to talk about in a serious manner. Uh, so, it, so we're seeing, again, a, some of a disconnect between uh, between the U.S. message also in, in, in this issue. Uh, next slide, please. So try, let me try and wrap, wrap things up in the next couple of slides because I'm probably running up against my time time limit here. But um, again, so to, to reiterate, the, the alliance is, in a lot of respects, is limited to what it can do because of, the, of member state sovereignty. There's, you know, all these all these uh, uh, efforts that NATO does is, is helpful, but again, it, it, it comes up against what the member states ultimately want and do not want. And so there's a limit to what NATO can and cannot do in, in some of these areas. Again, it's primarily been focused on petroleum products for military operations. There's also been a very strong uh, political and economic component to this, which is, has made its way up to the to the through the alliance and and in its uh, in its uh, in its communiques and its its uh, strategic concepts. Uh, natural gas is not yet is not a a uh, a strong uh, military operational co uh, commodity. Again, very mostly again we're talking about uh, liquid fuels as being the the uh, the primary. Uh, operational uh, fuel of choice uh, that may change as, as time goes on. But a point that I like to make is that as military operations become more networked, more dependent upon uh, uh, power generation, power uh, distribution, uh, natural gas uh, as a as a uh, as a source of power generation will become more important, particularly uh, as we see dual use civilian uh, grids and military uh, use of those grids. Uh, so there is more and more a, a military operational component to natural gas, uh, mostly as a secondary uh, secondary energy source, but certainly a, a, an important one nonetheless. Um, so the last point, uh, last in bold, uh, in, in, at the very bottom, again, trade in natural gas has has uh, strong political, economic, and military implications. You can say that about any of the fossil fuels, but again, this is it's been fairly recently within the last maybe two decades or so that natural gas has elevated or become elevated to really on uh, on a par with uh, with uh, liquid fuels and, and coal as, as far as its its importance uh, to all to uh, for national security and, and for military operations. So uh, next slide, please. So to again to try and, and wrap this all up in, in a couple of you know fairly succinct bullet points, we're looking at uh, the, the the overall impact on the alliance is I think is is fairly significant, as I think most of my the panel members do also. So we're looking at primarily from a stability standpoint. Uh, you know we've talked about Eastern Europe. I know uh, Dr. If Timmy mentioned very very uh, clearly about the the, the in, in, uh, impact on Ukraine, but also some of the larger uh, NATO member states to include Poland and Romania and, and the other Baltic uh, and, and uh, Balkan uh, states that are going to be impacted uh, by the, the, 
alterations in, in flows and so on of, of, uh, of natural gas. Cohesion, uh, we're seeing uh, very dramatic splits between Germany and some of its Eastern, uh, its Eastern and Central European allies who, who in many res respects are, are against Nord Stream 2, against uh, having Russia take a more of a prominent role in, in uh, in natural gas uh, su supply and distribution, and there's of course that's not to mention the U.S.-German split, which is uh, has has become very tense over the last year or so. Credibility, again, the issue of of uh, the more we debate this, the more this is brought up in a public forum, it 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 weakens the alliance's position. Makes there there's a uh, question of 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 uh, the alliance's ability to to meet its basic. Uh, Basic requirements under under Article Five, uh, the willingness of the alliance to stay together, that basic cohesion and, and credibility that we we talk about, and finally, uh, one of the, the key themes of this whole panel is the issue of deterrence. Um, whether I mean, it, there's been discussion about well, it, you know, at the rate uh, things are going, the, the the demand for Russian natural gas will subside over over the next several decades. But let's keep in mind that. Uh, um, NATO members and European Union members uh, provide tens of billions of dollars to Russia to to give them uh, for for this this uh, this commodity, which Russia of course uses to to uh, improve its military and improve its its uh, its own infrastructure and so on. So in a, in a very uh, uh, well very real sense, we are funding the very people we are trying to deter. And, and I guess the, on the on the surface, this just seems uh, very much of a a uh, a uh, very much of a uh, I'm trying to trying to put it uh, politely, but a, a a a poor choice, as I would say. So again, so we we are um, putting ourselves. When I say we, I mean the, the alliance uh, as a whole, putting ourselves. I think in a very uh, very uh, difficult position going forward. Even if uh, there is a, a a reduction in demand. There's still the between now and then. There's going to be mul multiple billions of dollars uh, going into funding a, a potential adversary. So I, I hope I uh, didn't go over my time, uh, Nicole. But uh, let me just uh, conclude by saying thank you. I appreciate this this opportunity, especially to the panel members and also to the uh, uh, to the forum here. So let me stop, and we can uh, go into our question and answer period. All right, thank you to all today's distinguished panelists for your presentations today. Um, all right, so we're going to move on to the Q&A portion of today's team session. Uh, it looks like we have about 25 minutes for, for questions. Um, so the first one and the most liked question, if we're using the wisdom of the crowd, is the argument that was made that recent events indicate that we need to review the viability of renewable energy. Did Europe have a massive failure of their renewable energy grid? In Texas, the primary fa failure was, ironically, the, the natural gas infrastructure. Uh, and this person argues that it wasn't the wind or solar, as the speaker implied. Um, and uh, Paul Michael, I believe that they were the one to, to talk about Texas a little bit. Yeah. Well, a couple of points. The uh, the chart I, sh I I had on screen, maybe, Nicole, you might be able to find that, where we have the, uh, the uh, solar, wind, natural gas graphic that was put together by the Department of Energy and Energy Information Administration. So if you want to argue, argue with them. Don't argue with me. Uh, wind and solar collapsed first. Okay. Uh, 
the uh, generating capacity after the collapse from wind was only 2%. Uh, natural gas, coal, and nuclear um, maintained capacity until February 16th, 15th and 16th, because they had to pick up the slack from the collapse, the critical mission failure, if you will, of the renewables. We see a similar model collapsing in Germany, and we've seen uh, uh, blackouts of the California renewable heavy, uh, renewable heavy model in uh, California with blackouts over summer. Now, what's going to be required is that these jurisdictions, Texas and Germany in particular, conduct an overall top-down review of what happened this winter, and specifically in terms of overall power generation, and specifically focusing in on uh, the reliability of both solar and wind. The turbines froze up in both jurisdictions. You have 30,000 tur uh, wind turbines in Germany, or approximately. Um, uh, this is a very serious issue, obviously, in terms of the functionality and reliability of these uh, power generators. Uh, traditional power plants, coal, nuclear, natural gas, are built to withstand and have for decades withstood uh, the vagaries of, of extreme climates. So the review is going to have to be conducted. Uh, it will take time, but I do believe the issue of renewables, solar and wind, will come into focus. And it's important not to take an ideological position here, which has been the case to a very great extent with renewables. They've been heavily subsidized. And a lot of profits have been made off of that subsidization of that project. In Texas alone, from 2015, you have 20,000 megawatts of power generation, almost exclusively from wind and solar. And that, here you have the result of putting so much in that one basket. So let's have the review. Let it be science and factually based. Let's see what the outcomes are. But in my opinion, the, the assumption that we would have energy transition uh, whereby these renewables would replace fuels like coal, nuclear, and natural gas has now been put in question, and the politicians, particularly in Germany, will have to take this into serious consideration as these uh, various elections uh, 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 take place, as David outlined in the beginning of this presentation. Okay. Can, I, can I add to that? Um, yeah, okay, so yeah. Yeah, so Paul Michael did a great job of of discussing that on a on a uh, you know per, pretty much a, a uh, op, you know civilian operational level. But think about that under under military operational conditions. You know how an outage like that would be disastrous for in a variety of areas. I mean, particularly from command and control, from a, a range of of potential uh, failure uh, points of failure uh, that. Uh, you know that that we we would potentially see in in, in a, a, Euro, a European Command uh, 
within the European Command AOR. So this, uh, these, these are things that are extremely serious that I take very seriously. And you know, if, if we're, we're playing games with, with the grid and, and uh, not having uh, you know, done a, a proper review and, and so on, stress tests, then we're, again, we're putting the Alliance's uh, credibility and its, its uh, mission effectiveness at risk let alone the, the, the lives of the U.S. and, and NATO allied members. So, um, again, this is, I, I, this is something very serious that we're, we're just not, uh, I don't think we are, we are raising to a proper level. All right, thank you both. Um, okay, so our next question is from Martin Correll, um, and this question is, as a strategic interest, what public influence campaigns, um, i.e. narratives and messaging, have been identified regarding Nord Stream 2, and what tactics are being observed? For example, government agencies, environmentalist groups, or malign actors attempting to influence public opinion. I think Arnie uh, uh, made a run at that. We know, for example, that uh, the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act of 21, speaks specifically to this, right? I mean, this has made it to the top rungs of public policy. It's law. So, um, Arnie, you want to pick it up? I mean, um, you're on mute. So I gather the, qu the question was dedicated towards U.S. Uh, responses, and, and Dan mentioned the NDAA. Um, there's also uh, other other vehicles out there that are that are uh, that are in place uh, to to uh, to try and and basically uh, put a stop to it. Uh, my view is I I, I uh, come along the lines of, of Professor Weeby, and I think that by hook or by crook, this this the pipeline will be completed. Um, I hope I'm wrong, but uh, I just don't see that. Uh, you know, I think what we're doing here now is is too little, too late. Um, the the efforts within the EU and within uh, uh, to to uh, to thwart this have also been been uh, I'd say uh, uh, too little, too late. And I think Germany has had a lot of influence in in in, uh, in thwarting any any real EU efforts to to. Uh, just to stop this. So I forget the other parts of the question, but I, I think uh, from official standpoints that those are the main areas and they've, and they, uh, I think in both cases, they, they've, they've come up short. If, if, Arnie, let me um, add to that if I could, but on the other side of the, the Atlantic, sure. there are extraordinarily powerful uh, lobbies in Germany. Uh, the the uh, Eastern Committee of German Industry, the Ostausschuss, uh, is hugely influential in helping to determine the fate of this project. Not to mention those companies which are immediately involved in, in uh, you know, the, the actual physical infrastructure of the thing and the distribution network and so on, uh, about which Dr. Iftimi knows and, and uh, Professor Wiebe know much more than I do. Um, but approaching it as I do from that political perspective, um, there are hugely powerful interests in Germany. Um, which are not shy about making their views known in this electoral year. Um, and for any party that wants to be in national government in September, and if we presume for the sake of argument that's the CDU, CSU, and the Greens, they will have to come to terms with that, with that interest. Um, even the Green Party, I think. Uh, I am of the view, this is not shared by everybody by any means, that the Green Party's national leadership 
um, might well be willing to sort of grit their teeth and swallow this project in order to get into the national government of a national coalition. Um, I could be wrong about that, but uh, this is my view, which is not shared by other persons who watch the Green Party. So I just thought I would add that that uh, that German element of, about uh, pressure. To, to just to make a couple of completions um, to to what David just uh, just said about uh, about uh, the narratives in in Germany. It's not just that Germany; it's Germany, uh, France, and. Uh, uh, and, and Austria, where we have to, to realize that there are um, the companies that were involved in supporting the building of, uh, of Nord Stream 2, they already spent uh, over $8 billion um, for, for the pipeline. So they've already made this investment and they, they've been lobbying a, a, a very um, uh, aggressively uh, politically to, uh, to support uh, the pipeline. So even when comments were made by President Macron uh, not supporting the pipeline, within a couple of days he, he, uh, he took a step back and said he's not opposed to it. So there's definitely um, a narrative within, within those countries. But there's also a narrative that comes from Gazprom, so from, from Russia. Um, so if you, and, and their argument there is, is so much based on, on the infrastructure and price. So the, on the infrastructure side is that is that the argument there is that the Ukrainian uh, infrastructure cannot be re reliable. So they're pushing uh, strongly on uh, on that narrative uh, because they're saying it's already outdated, it shouldn't be used anymore, so we have to, to move away from it. And then the second argument that is being brought on, which is which is a valid argument, is that it's cheaper to um, to transport this natural gas by pipeline um, through Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 than it is through Ukraine because of the tariffs that are being charged by Ukraine uh, for, for this transit. So there's, there's some money that's being saved by Gazprom uh, and the, the on the receiving end uh, by, by Germany um, by, by purchasing this natural gas through Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2. So those are the, the, the narratives that are coming from from Russia and Gazprom as as well. Since, right. a large, since a large part of this is to isolate and weaken Ukraine from the Russian perspective, does anybody have a suggestion about a counter move that the that Kiev could could pull out of the hat? I mean, not all positions on the chessboard are losing positions, or is this one of those where Ukraine is in a losing position? Right. <laughs> it looks like Russia has played this one well. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if I may add one more thing, because there's some other questions that were asked by, by, uh, um, by the audience um, that have to do with, um, uh, with who decides where we purchase the, the natural gas. And the reality is, is that it's private companies that decide uh, you know, where they purchase uh, the gas based on price. I mean, yes, natural gas, like Dr. Dupuy has said earlier, has both uh, economic and geopolitical significance. But at the end of the day, it is the company that decides where to purchase the gas. And the company or the companies involved 
they're more concerned about the price and less concerned about about the geopolitics. So yes, the reality is, you know, there's questions, why don't we just switch to LNG? Well, LNG, when it's coming from, from the U.S., happens to be uh, a little bit more expensive. Um, so, um, you know, from that perspective, energy companies are more tempted to just purchase from, uh, from, uh, from Russia. And it goes the same argument with uh, re uh, renewable energy, where solar and, uh, and wind, uh, unless it's being subsidized by the government, it, it's, you know, it becomes more expensive. Um, and if we just look at price, then yes, natural gas from Russia is, is cheaper. But the problem is, is that it, this is going to affect, you know, it's not just Ukraine, it affects um, European unity now if we're just looking at, at price and completely ignore geopolitics. All right, thank you all for, for discussing that last, that last question. Um, I want to uh, turn our attention now to Kirk Otterson's um, question. He's from Los Alamos National Lab. And uh, he asks, one of the speakers mentioned the possibility or potential of a return to nuclear power generation, given France's demonstrated performance with nuclear power and Macron's concept of strategic autonomy, where are France and Germany in terms of discussing nuclear power? Nicole, can I uh, respond? Yes, go ahead. Right. I think certainly the uh, the events of the last few weeks in Germany will raise over a period of time, as, as reviews are being conducted as to what happened, um, will raise the issue of nuclear, nuclear power. And in particular, new technologies, which I'm sure you all are familiar with, including uh, micro-nuclear re reactors, one to five uh, megawatts, uh, modular uh, reactors that can link up, they're, they're portable, you can put them on the back of a flat a bed truck, move them around. They're, they're safe, very efficient. Uh, and I think in the case of Germany, that might be a very appealing uh, uh, alternative to uh, the issue of uh, reliability that they had hoped to achieve with wind and solar. Uh, so in my opinion, new technology, the commercialization of uh, micro nuclear reactors and micro grids that accompany that uh, is something that Germany and other countries will look at. Can I add to that real quick? Uh, that's a great question, uh, Kirk. Uh, and actually, this morning I just read, I think it was the Wall Street Journal, how Canada is actually considering um, these new technologies that Paul Michael, uh, Dr. Uh, Professor Weeby just mentioned. Uh, so maybe the, the shift is going to happen, and ca Canada being one of the, the they said one, being one of the first large uh, economies to to uh, to really reevaluate the use of nuclear, uh, and I suspect Germany maybe a couple of generations from now, when G Germany may may reevaluate uh, uh, the ban that uh, Chancellor Merkel placed uh, you know, some years ago. So the, I see this as a cyclical issue. Uh, the new technologies coming out are, are going to make that much more attractive. Uh, and it just makes sense uh, to have an additional source of uh, you know a relatively clean source of fuel that uh, energy source that's going to be available. Uh, let me add something. I, I know that uh, when Germany's renewables are working, when the sun's shining and the wind's blowing, they produce more than they need. 
And the same thing on the French side. The French nuclear produces more than it needs or can produce more than it needs. So, so the two countries look at each other as batteries, that is storage mechanisms. When I, when I need more, says one of them, I can get it from the other guy. But I don't remember offhand the cross-border flows. To what extent do they depend upon each other? Um, does anybody remember? I mean, is Germany buying um, nuclear from France from time to time? I know France buys renewable from Germany from time to time. Because, the, well, because Germany, Germany paid high dollars to dump their excess uh, at a time of uh, surplus yeah, a couple of months yeah. ago. <laughs> Uh, but I don't remember whether Germany is still buying nuclear, even while they, they hold their nose on nuclear. Are they still buying? Dan, on that issue, I don't believe so. What's interesting in relationship to the query you put out is that Germany uh, this winter had a massive drawdown on natural gas storage, which it had uh, you know, uh, increased significantly since last year. And that's an important factor, obviously in terms of capacity, in terms of storage. They simply could not get any LNG volumes uh, to Germany. They simply could not get additional natural gas supplies from mainland Europe. And because of the winter conditions, they had to draw down, I think, something like 50% of what they had in storage. And then the winter is not over yet. And again, that speaks to the viability of, number one, uh, the Nord Stream pipelines and the need to rely on a huge volume of natural gas storage in case of an emergency, as uh, Arnie had mentioned earlier. So again, there's, there seems to be you know, some firewalls that have been inadvertent, inadvertently constructed between these, these particular batteries that you're talking about, France and Germany. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I would add just one other item in response to this question. Uh, there has been uh, what strikes me as a fairly widespread bit of news coverage recently um, in the German media concerning uh, not only the, um, the sort of miniature nuclear reactors that Professor Wiebe was just talking about uh, as a possible power source, though that news coverage was put in the framework of uh, a U.S. approach. Uh, nevertheless, it was quite favorable, it seemed to me, from an editorial point of view. Uh, and secondly, uh, there's been a fair degree of uh, coverage recently in Germany about um, completing the search for a nuclear waste repository, uh, which was gigantically controversial in the 1980s and early 90s, and then sort of faded from public view, um, and now has come back uh, as, I, as I watch the sort of German media on a daily basis. Um, that's anecdotal evidence, uh, to be sure, but uh, uh, it's interesting that uh, Professor Wiebe should be mentioning this specific power source or this specific alternative as a power source at the same time that this coverage is, is sort of reappearing in the, in the German media. I find that very interesting, um, though again, it is anecdotal. All right, thank you all. Um, so I uh, want to be respectful of, of, of all of your time, um, but I will uh, go after one last question with our remaining few minutes. Uh, this question is from Curtis F. from IWTSD. Um, and he says, the German ruling coalition in particular seems very determined to not have its hands tied by American or NATO strategic thinking. But how does the rest of Western Europe, both ruling and opposition parties feel about this? 
Do you see Nord Stream 2 as a desperate Russian ploy to bring its gas market at a lower cost, or primarily as a means to drive a wedge into NATO, or primarily as a means to gain additional leverage over Kyiv? It's the clever Russians who have a cheap product that everybody wants who are leveraging it for geopolitical purposes. Uh, the fact that they can drive a wedge into Europe is gravy. The fact that they can undermine uh, their neighbor and extend their strategic depth is uh, whipped cream. I mean, it's. I think it looks very good for Russia, and I don't know really how to counter it, you know, to turn to, to jujitsu it, to, uh, to turn it to our benefit and to and to their disbenefit. Right, so, uh, if, no, go ahead. Uh, I, I was just going to say, uh, if, if this is not the weaponization of energy resources at a less than kinetic level, uh, I'd be rather surprised from a military historical point of view. Um, uh, Dr. Iftimi, I didn't mean to cut you off there, sorry. No, no, I, I was gonna point out that, uh, you know, with, a big amount of, of the Russian economy being dependent on, on uh, oil and gas uh, exports. Um, the, the vast majority of profits really come from, uh, from oil. Um, so really you do see this, uh, this uh, intent to keep natural gas at a very, very low price. I mean, it, it's again one of the arguments that they're using to shift from Ukraine uh, in order to to bring that natural gas to uh, to Western Europe at a very very low price, and and I wouldn't go um, so as to say well the pri the the priority is is Kiev or or it's basically um, instilling this unity within within NATO. Why I mean basically it's you're shooting you know you're shooting two birds with one stone. Um, uh, so why not? So let me just add on to what uh, Dr. Timmy mentioned. I mean, we tightly brought up uh, natural gas, but again, uh, keep in mind that uh, Russia also supplies Europe with about a third of its crude and also now its refined products. So we, we, we're not just talking natural gas, we're talking all the fossil fuels, which is, is you know, demonstrates an even greater, uh, greater vulnerability, of, you know, and, and uh, lack of uh, source of diversification. They mean to put a downer on the day's discussion, but uh, we're trying to keep this as real as possible. No worries. Um, well, we have reached the end of our time, so unfortunately we're gonna end on a, on a slightly uh, down note. <laughs> but thank you all for, for tuning into today's panel discussion, and thank you all to, um, or thank you to our five distinguished panelists for all taking the time to, to present today. It's been a really fascinating discussion. Um, so have a great day, everyone, uh, and thank you to the Academic Alliance and Julie McNally for, for helping organize this event. Thank have you. a great day, everyone. Thank, thank you, everybody. Much. Thanks, teammates. Thank you. Ian, uh, have a good uh, exercise.